Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Founding father John Adams called us a nation of laws, but the law can be tricky and difficult to understand. Many people, particularly those in marginalized communities, don't have access to the legal expertise and resources they need when facing important everyday issues, from a dispute with a landlord to a deportation order from a judge. Last June, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker tried to help. He allocated $10 million of this year's budget to the Access to Justice program. Two nonprofit organizations, the Resurrection Project and the Westside Justice Center, will take the lead as fiscal managers of the program. Joining us now to discuss is the executive director of the Westside Justice Center, Tanya Woods, and Eddie Rendon, vice president of immigration advocacy and defense at the Resurrection Project. Welcome to Reset. Thanks for having us. So first of all, how does the Access to Justice program work, and specifically, who do you serve, Eddie? So what we are aiming to do is to make sure that folks that are impacted by immigration policy, such as myself and my family, as well as uh, communities that are impacted by incarceration, have the legal services that they need, but even before that, understand their rights, have opportunities to uh, become engaged by becoming what we call community navigators, go out and give these presentations, and then funnel people to the appropriate legal services so that they can get high-quality representation, whether it be deportation, whether it be they're facing housing discrimination because maybe they were formerly incarcerated. Um, And so we want to make sure that that is available throughout the community, uh, throughout our communities, as well as across the state. Tanya, talk a little bit more about what happens in these presentations. Yeah, so we refer to them commonly as Know Your Rights presentations. And oftentimes, many of our clients will come to us and they'll express concerns over a particular legal or quasi-legal issue. But what we've found is that when people are prepared ahead of the game, if they have information ahead of time, then they're that much more able to uh, advocate for themselves in the future. And then recognizing that oftentimes we just share information through kith and kin in our own communities. I'm from the west side uh, of Chicago myself, from K-Town and in Austin. And there's always that, you know, that Aunt Sadie or someone on the block that knows a little bit about how to get your Social Security benefits if you need to file an appeal. So what Know Your Rights Education can do is give people accurate information in a timely fashion and affect more people at one time so that as we're passing around information in, you know, ways that are familiar to us in communities like ours, the ones that we serve at TRP and the Westside Justice Center, we know we're doing so responsibly. So it's really about giving legal education and putting it in the hands of the people. Eddie, how do you connect with people who need these services? Um, well, I, th- I mean, a lot of the 
organizations that receive these funding as well as the Resurrection Project were in these communities affected, right? Um, and we recruit our community navigators from people that are directly impacted. Uh, so we actually already lead the program for the city as well, have been leading it for four years. Um, we have about 300 community navigators. I would venture to say 90% of them are women. Um, 90% of them are the immigrants themselves. Um, so they already go to church with other immigrants. They already go to schools with other immigrants. They go to ESL classes with other immigrants. And it's the same model that Westside Justice Center has. We don't have to go out and find people because we're amongst them. Absolutely. And that's the truly um, miraculous thing about access to justice and why we're so incredibly grateful to our legislators and to the governor's office for making sure that these dollars were appropriated in the way that they were. It sent a strong message to people that the problems that they're having and the ways that uh, we know work as far as solving those problems, which is together, uh, that there's truly the confidence, the courageousness and bravery in making sure that we have those resources. So this is truly a wonderful step forward. Uh, It's truly an opportunity for the communities that we serve to be elevated and uplifted in a way that we believe maybe has not been before, but that we're looking forward to for years to come. When did the idea to bring the work of of community organizations under this larger umbrella of access to justice, when did that idea start? You know, it was actually relatively quickly. We've, I think a lot of organizations have been doing this work. Yeah. Um, what we are incredibly excited for is that we are able to learn from each other. So there is so much overlap between the criminal justice system and thinking about criminal justice reform and immigration policies. And so about a year ago, we started thinking about what would it look like if the state were able to bring together these groups to start working collectively. And we approached some of our champions in the legislature, and they also had this idea of bringing black and brown communities together, um, talking about uh, the need for resources in our communities. So we started working on it about a year ago. I've had this idea for a long time. I grew up, I'm undocumented myself, both of my parents and my family's undocumented and live in a small town near Wisconsin. And oftentimes we think about the lack of services that are available in Chicago. But you go outside of Cook County um, and you realize that there's even less. Mm -hmm. Um, And we need to make sure that uh, we're taking the resources and the knowledge and the learning that we have had here in Chicago and translating that to organizations such as the WYMCA in Rockford so that they Mm -hmm. can go out and do do this type of work where my mom and my dad live and where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Tanya, how big of an impact do you think it will have on the work organizations have been doing in, in a silo mm-hmm. to work under this collective umbrella? I think it'll be enormous. I think what will be incumbent upon us to, to tell the narrative in a way that perhaps has not been done in the past. And so we are certainly, uh, again, as I said before, very grateful to have this opportunity. But what we can do differently than what we've done in befo- before in the past is how we measure success. And so oftentimes we've measured success by, you know, counting people or, you know, as I like to say, sometimes butts and seats. But there's a much bigger, larger story. And so the onus will be on these smaller, emerging, middle-sized organizations to uh, work hand-in-hand with our funding agencies um, and with our uh, foundations and with our legislators to tell a different story. I always say bake a bigger pie um, and that we can do this and that all the time. And we are looking forward to having opportunities like this one and others to be able to tell that story and reshape that narrative so that we can talk about the person who, you know, once had uh, a, a driver as a shared ride cab driver, right, and uh, gets a job, he's formerly incarcerated, doing well, providing for his family, and then a random background check says, oh, wait, 
you've got something on your background and your criminal record and you can't work for us anymore. And that happens. Access to justice is going to put some resources in that individual's hands where he can seek assistance, legal assistance to say, hey, um, how do we get around this so this gentleman or woman can go back to work and keep their job, provide for their family in the ways that many of us take for granted. So this is a real hands-on opportunity to not just put money into a bucket, but to actually transform lives, uh, to elevate communities of color, and to be able to uplift uh, legal services in a way that we haven't before, that are community-centered, community-facing, and where the people that are providing the service look like the people that they're serving. Eddie, for people who, who say, I don't want state money to go to support this kind of work. I don't want it to go support legal aid for undocumented people or for people who are formerly incarcerated. What's your response to that? The state has to set its priorities, and we believe that um, one is we also pay taxes as well. Um, and you know, it's at the end of the day, um, if we have families here that are protected, uh, that are stable, that can keep their jobs, that is ultimately good for the economy. Everybody needs legal services, and to have the the state invest in this, I think, is a very good step. Tanya, yeah. your thoughts? I, I'd add to that that we're not only talking about the individual who's the recipient of the services. So oftentimes we look at this through a very narrow lens. It's the person who's undocumented or the person who was formerly incarcerated. But I'm encouraging your, our listeners, um, the folks who will read about Access to Justice, to expand that conversation to recognize that incarceration and mass deportation affect families. Mm-hmm. They affect communities. So it's not just the person who's coming in for services, um, but everybody that's around that individual. And so we will be able to assist not not only the individual who themselves may have been impacted by violence and incarceration, but perhaps even a family member that comes in and says, well, you know, my dad, while he was incarcerated, these are the things that I'm going through as a juvenile, and I need some legal and social services help. So we're hoping that people will begin to think of this as a win-win, because when an individual wins, then it strengthens the family. When the family is strengthened, then the community is strengthened, and then we all win. So these are very Mm -hmm. well-appropriated dollars in the right place. If you take a look at it in a much different lens than maybe we've typically looked at legal services or social services in the past. And because we're taking a holistic approach to access to justice, this isn't just about um, an attorney in a court of law. This is about community navigators who are trained to provide legal education. And so when you wrap these things together and then embed them in the community where people get a chance to serve folks that they have a trust and a relationship with, what we found last year as we started this is that there are hundreds of organizations across the state of Illinois from Cook County to Champaign County who were crying out for this kind of support. And so again, I cannot underscore how you know truly grateful we are and excited to celebrate access to justice because this is an opportunity not just to, to provide grants to grantees, but to build a coalition to, to weave a new community and a new fabric across the state that will then hopefully expand and we can reach those areas that Eddie talked about that are not currently being reached. And, and Eddie, talk a little bit more about how the project will also work. There's 60 organizations of varying sizes uh, who will be a part of this project. How, how does this work? Yeah, so um, the 60 organizations are, you know, all the way down to Champaign, all the way up to Rockford, um, several in the Chicagoland area. Um, so they have received funding to be able to expand on their legal services or perhaps to go from being a fee-for-service model to being a free model now or folks that 
need those legal services can uh, go to ilaccesstojustice.com, and that's a com comprehensive list of all the organizations. You can reach out to that organization, um, inquire about their intake process, um, and then go in and get the services that you need. And um, you know, everything starts off with a legal consultation with an attorney, um, and we can see if you have a case. Well, Tanya, we know that Illinois is the first Midwestern state to have a program like this. When we look across the rest of the country, how common are these types of programs? Not very at all. Um, as Ed a mentioned, while we might often have the same idea, my mom has a favorite saying that she says there's no new ideas in the universe, right? So there are a lot of ideas that are out there, but rarely do we have an opportunity to implement those ideas. So this is truly a rare occurrence, and what we hope is that not only we will be a model in the Midwest, but across the country as well. And so we um, are welcoming the opportunity to kind of take the show on the road, but also to learn from each other. You know, being able to share best practices is often what stifles not-for-profits or smaller or emerging organizations because they're not able to interface with each other because they're so busy doing the work, right? Um, and so we'll continue to be busy doing the work, but this gives us a framework to bring people together so that we can share those best practices, so that we can leverage economies of scale, that we can extol and highlight our work across not only the Midwest but across the country. And that's where when, you know, some of the champions that Eddie mentioned, when they go to their uh, meetings and conferences and conclaves with other legislators that we hope that they'll take the story along with them. Uh, so we truly would like to believe um, that this will be the first of many. It's certainly an invitation to open it to grantees who are large and small, emerging and midsize across the state. There are very few women of color that are leading legal aid clinics like Ed a and myself, certainly even fewer that are attorneys like myself. Uh, so we know that there are probably others out there who would like to do the same. So we certainly hope that this becomes a model and, and a bar that we can all, you know, strive for. So a $10 million uh, appropriation in the budget from the state of Illinois for this project. At a longer term, how do you sustain this work if state funding, as we know, the state is facing huge fiscal issues? How do you sustain this work long term? Yeah, um, so a couple things is um, many of us are also members of the Responsible Budget Coalition advocating for progressive income tax um, and making sure that we're able to get the revenue that the state needs and invest it in the appropriate ways. Um, so we'll continue to you know advocate for the for the funding at the state level. We're working with some business partners to get some matches for the program. And you know I've been working in nonprofit um, my entire career, and when you are able to get some uh, investment from a state or a government agency, you're then able to leverage that into philanthropy giving. And so we're hopeful that the philanthropic will step up and also invest. And they have already been investing in these organizations and will continue to do so. Well, Tanya, you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you want to measure the outcomes of this project. How do you do that? There are obviously some deliverables that we will, um, as fiscal sponsors, be accountable to the government to make sure that we are good stewards of the resources that we've been given and the grantees are the same. But then we also have an opportunity to expand uh, how we measure those outcomes. So those are some of those non-traditional ways are um, storytelling and reshaping the narrative in ways that involve not just counting, you know, how many screenings or how many Know Your Rights workshops and while that is certainly important.
being able to tell stories in the first person, where a person is able to uh, share their testimony, if you will, about how services from access to justice has transformed their lives. Uh, And that might take the form in many different ways. This is one way, uh, being able to storytell and and have that uh, narrative reach hundreds, if not thousands of people in a different way. And we have some great partners in uh, some of our foundations and other funding agencies that are helping us uh, define what some of those other, you know, ways of measuring success will look like. And we're very, very fortunate that the uh, agency through which this program will flow, the Illinois Department of Human Services, is very open and receptive to that. And I can't underscore enough just the courageousness and the bravery of this particular administration to do things in a different way that's both fiscally responsible but also recognizes there's lots of different ways that we can measure how well we're um, achieving our goals. That's Tanya Woods, Executive Director of the West Side Justice Center, and Ed A. Rendon, Vice President of Immigration Advocacy and Defense at the Resurrection Project. Tanya, Ed thanks for speaking with us. And thank thank you. And that's today's Reset. We've also put a bonus podcast of Governor Pritzker's State of the State speech in case you weren't able to hear it live earlier today. We'll have analysis of that speech in the coming days, including on our Friday News Roundup. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.